Sisters, I'll invite you to turn, yes, to turn to your pew Bibles where we will be picking up this morning at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5. You can find this in your pew Bibles on page 1162. So we're going to be reading this morning from verses 1 through 20. And over the past few weeks, we here at Almond Valley have been making our way through this book which is a book that has to do not only with the church, but with, as I've been saying, the identity and the mission of the church, which is, of course, the subtitle of our series. And so, so far, we've seen that the church is the body of Christ, that God himself has built and shaped and put together of both Jews and Gentiles. It's a diverse body gathered from all different nations of the earth. And he has done this by his grace. He has taken those of us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, and he has made us alive now together in Christ, such that we are now a living picture uh, of God's grace, as I've just prayed. We are a testament of God's goodness and his glory to all, to the whole creation, but also, and what seems to be a focus in the book of Ephesians, we are also a living testament of God's glory to the demonic spiritual realm, including the you might say, the good spiritual realm. Angels and demons alike watch and see what God is doing. And so in this, I think it's clear that the focus of the early chapters of the book are what I've said are theological. And so Ephesians is roughly uh, broken up into two main sections. The theological sections, chapter 1, 2, and 3, and the ethical sections, chapters 3, 4, and 5. God is saying through it all, you are my work of art. You are my grand masterpiece, a beautiful tapestry woven together of all the nations that I've made so that you may display my glory, glory to the ends of the earth. And so we... That's our identity as the church. We are that piece of art. But in these later chapters, three, four, or four, five, and six, excuse me, we are now told how to display God's glory. We are able to see that God's intention is to manifest himself through us, and that is not just through our existence, but also through our livings, through our shared way of life, through the way we live and dwell and have our being in this world. So we saw last week we put off our old selves and we put on our new selves, our true selves, but there's also more to this mission, which is what we're going to see this morning. More to our walk with Christ and how we move forward by grace. We've seen in Ephesians chapter 2 that God has prepared us for good works, that we should walk in them. And that is what this whole section of the, of the chapter, of chapter 5, is all about. Walking, learning now how to walk, how to actively display God's glory to the world. So that's what Paul wants us to see here in chapter 5. But before we read our passage, I do want to point out that we're going to be stopping at the end of verse 20, which in the ESV will look a little bit strange because it puts the passage to go all the way through verse 21. And this is a fine way of translating it. It's, it could go either way. We could put verse 21, as I'm doing, with next week's passage, so 21 through 33, or we could put it at the end of this week's passage. Uh, 
And so I've chosen to put it with next week's passage. I think 21 is a better fit to go with the final section of chapter 5, where it gets into husbands and wives with one another. And so, with that being said, let's pray now to the Lord for his insight as we read. Our Father in heaven, you are the God that dwells in unsearchable light. You are ineffable, Lord, but yet you have made yourself known to us. And so, Lord, we ask now as we read this text, this text where you communicate your will for our lives and where you call us to walk in light, Lord, we ask for that light. Your word is a lamp unto our feet, yet, Lord, we need your spirit to illuminate it for us, that it may be that lamp, that we may walk in your ways and in your will. So, Lord, help us by the spirit to now make sense of your word, that we may be changed in our walk together. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and following. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes down upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Now, if, if you were with us last Sunday as we walked our way through the second half of Ephesians chapter 4, you may perhaps ob- remember how we observed uh, Paul's effort to sort of sketch out what we could call the ethical vision of God's kingdom, how life should look in the kingdom of God. And Paul did this by pointing out the stark contrasts of how the pagan Gentiles lived and how these Gentile Christians in Ephesus once lived before they came to Christ. So he contrasts this then with living in the kingdom of God and what life in the kingdom of God ought to look like. And so here in chapter 5, Paul is still very much making this same case. He's still very much making these kinds of contrasts in order for us to see more clearly the difference between life in this present age and life in what he calls the kingdom of God and of Christ. And so we see that there is a ruler of the present age, the prince of the power of the air, who Paul mentions back in early chapter 2. And so now we have a kingdom of God and of Christ, that he is our ruler now. And so the clearest way to see that chapters 4 and 5 fit seamlessly together is to take note, I think, of a key word that we see used five times in just these two chapters. And that word is walk. To walk. And it's used in verses chapter 4, verses 1 and 17. It's also here, here used in chapter 5 and verses 2, 8, and 15. So you can see on the screen, I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then in 4, 17, he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then here in this morning's passage, we've already read, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light, the light of the, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so as I've been pointing out, Since the start of chapter 4, we can see this whole shift of theology now into ethics, how we are called to live. And that's what this concept of walking is really all about. We are now called to walk not only differently, which we might think of as sort of a different gait, G-A-I-T, or a different strut or way of walking, but also now in a different direction, where we may have been walking in one direction, now we are walking in a different direction. And now we are walking with a different purpose. We have different intentions for our walk. Now that we've changed directions, we are heading somewhere else. And we now also have a different guide, no longer the prince of the power of the air, but now our guide is the Holy Spirit, who is walking us towards holiness. And this is what Jesus says even when he talks about uh, the wide gate that leads to death and the narrow way or the narrow gate that leads to life. And so all of this, again, is in Paul's mind a stark contrast to how we used to walk and now how we are called to walk today. Paul even said back in chapter 2 that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so the fact of the matter is, to be alive, even to be spiritually dead yet still physically alive, is to be on a walk. 
To be human is to walk, even if you physically can't walk. And that's why, as far as the Bible is concerned, all of our life, especially our spiritual life, is framed with this concept of walking. Going all the way back to the Garden of Genesis, where we're told that God came to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day to the garden and walked among them and with them. And so speaking to this point, I think the comments of one Presbyterian pastor named Daryl Johnson are illuminating. Daryl Johnson writes this, Paul calls us to walk in the new world, into Christ, into the life of the Trinity. We have been walking in the worlds we have shaped, and worlds our cultures have shaped. Another world, shaped by the gospel, has invaded and is overtaking all the old worlds. To paraphrase Paul, come now and live in the world brought into being by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will help you navigate through the new world. So that's the point of our entire passage. Walking in this new world. Walking in the light of this new reality that has been ushered in through the revelation and the coming, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question then, of course, for us becomes, how? How are we to walk? How are we to be uh, walking according to the will of God? How are we to live as God's grand masterpiece in this world to display His glory? And so in some sense, this is what Paul has already been driving at in chapter 4, but we also see it more clearly now here in chapter 5. And so in order to understand what this walk entails, we'll need to continue listening carefully to what he says. And so I think in order to do this, We'll need to work sort of systematically through the text. We'll need to begin to walk through the text, as it were. And so we can start in verses 1 and 2 by drawing upon the two images and reflecting upon the two images that Paul gives to us there. He says in these first two verses, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So we see these two themes, children and imitation. Children and imitation. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, my and Bailey's little 11-month-old, almost actually uh, one-year-old, he'll be one year in about a week, his, little, his name is Callan, he's our little nephew, and he started to finally take his first steps. And This is, of course, a momentous time for any young child, but it's something we all must learn to do. Callan is at that age where, though he can begin to walk and he can take a few steps, he still can't yet talk. Uh, But he can imitate. He can see what you're doing, and he will do it back now. It's a fun age. And so, as whenever we hang out with them, I've sort of noticed in increments how much he has grown. And so, months ago, he, he was sort of lifeless in the sense that he wouldn't do anything back. He would not react in any way to, to me or what I was trying to communicate to him. But now, if I raise my hand, Callan will raise his hand. And if I begin to talk to him, he will actually begin to talk back, though yet not with words, of course. Or I've tried snapping my fingers 
just to see if he would try to do it back. And he does. He, he holds out his hand and he looks confused at it, uh, not knowing how to make that noise come off of his hand, but he's trying. And so you can see that he's imitating. And this is how we learn as human beings. We learn by copying and following in the ways of those who are more advanced, who have lived it out for us, ahead of us. And so I think that that's what Paul is doing here by drawing an analogy between learning how to walk spiritually with growing up in maturity as believers, something he has talked about earlier in chapter 4, growing in maturity. He's now weaving all of these concepts together for the Ephesians to understand what he's saying. The point then is that those of us who have now been reborn or made alive in Christ, we must learn how to walk. We have to be like little children, learning how to take our baby steps, walking not in the direction that leads to death and destruction, but now in this new direction that leads to life. But there's another absolutely vital point here from these first two verses that we really cannot afford to miss. And it's pointed out for us helpfully by a Reformed New Testament scholar uh, named S.M. or Steve Baugh. And so here's how he puts it in his commentary. He says, It is vital to see that believers do not become children or acquire God's love by imitating him, but they are children and so, in consequence, imitate him. The fact that Christians are members of God's household with free access to their father has already been stated earlier in the letter. But now, in God's beloved son, Paul affirms that believers, formerly by nature children of wrath, are now adopted beloved children. This is the basis, he says, for walking in God's love as those who are not just being renewed in the divine image as creatures, but as children of God and beloved children at that. And so this, brothers and sisters, then is the grounds of all of our ethics. We do not walk in order to become children as though our walking earns our status as being God's children, but we've already been adopted. And so we walk as those who've been adopted by God's grace. And so as we turn now to focus on Paul's ethics here, as he lays them out for us in the remainder of the passage, sort of all of his do's and don'ts, we'll need to keep this idea at the forefront of our minds, that we walk as those who've already been adopted as sons and daughters. And we've already been made made alive and made into that masterpiece by grace through which we display God's glory. And so now, from this vantage point, we can begin now to sort of systematically plod our way through the text. And there's a lot here. And so I I thought a lot this week about how to uh, work through this. And I just thought it would probably be best if we just walked bit by bit through the text. And so we can start, I think, by saying once again that Paul is continuing on from last week's comparing and contrasting idea between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And so we can see in verses 1 and 2 that we are to imitate God by walking in love. And it's interesting here to see, though, how he grounds this in the loving example of Christ, who, of course, perfectly imitated God, his father, and walked in love, as Paul tells us, by giving himself up for us. He loved us, Paul says, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's what Paul writes in verse 2. 
And so what's fascinating about this phrase, gave himself up, is that it's the same exact Greek word or phrase used back in chapter 4. In verse 19, where Paul had just told us that the pagan Gentiles had, uh, in their rejection and hard-heartedness against God, that they had given themselves up to sensuality, greedy or covetous to practice every kind of impurity. And so the contrast then is clear. Christ, walking in love, gave himself up for us, for those whom he loved, whereas in paganism or in worldly living, it sort of happens quite the opposite way. Instead of giving ourselves up in love for the sake of the other, in the worldly way of life, we give ourselves up to our flesh, to our sin, and so use others for the gratification of our flesh, of our own desires. And so instead of giving ourselves, we actually end up taking others, even others' own bodies, for our own gratification. And this is exactly why, then, that Paul tells us in verse 3, the next verse, that sexual immorality, which is the Greek word porneia, which is where we get the word pornography, and all impurity, there's that word again from verse 19 of chapter 4, or covetousness, and that same word for greedy in in chapter 4, 19, he says these things must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And so these two modes of living, he's telling us, are so incompatible that they cannot exist together That Paul could not possibly be clearer here. He says these things must not even be named against you. Now, Paul doesn't mean here that we can't talk about such things. He himself is talking about evil very plainly in this text. It doesn't mean we can't speak of these things the way that you can't speak of Lord Voldemort or he who must not be named in the Harry Potter novels. That's not what Paul is saying. Instead, the point is that Christians should so stringently avoid, work so hard to avoid these sorts of lifestyles or any form of sexual immorality that that we are therefore to live above reproach without even a hint of it among us, such that anyone could even suggest that we are participating in such uh, immorality. And so I like how the NIV actually translates this verse, verse 3, where it says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. And so this, then, is the high and holy ideal of sexuality in the Christian uh, way of life. It is the high, holy ideal of self-giving, of sacrificial love, modeled for us by Christ. As the church, then, our calling is to strive to give ourselves up in love for those around us, for our neighbor, and also, more importantly, for God. And so, in all of this, Paul is talking about how sex is such a good gift that we, it's not that we can't have it named among us, it's just that we may take it seriously in the way that it was designed for us to be. And so this also explains then verse 4, where Paul begins to forbid how we speak of sex, how we speak of this great gift. And he says that there should be no filthiness nor foolish talk, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So there's a contrast again. No foolish talk 
or filthy talk, which are out of place, but instead thanksgiving. So replace this way of life with this way of life. And so we shouldn't speak flippantly about sex, in other words, because it's something that God has intended as this great gift. So I like the way how Pastor John Stott puts it in his commentary. He simply says, all God's gifts, including sex, are subjects for thanksgiving rather than for joking. To joke about them is bound to degrade them. To thank God for them is the way to preserve their worth as the blessings of a loving creator. And so, brothers and sisters, given the weightiness of these things, given that we may read these and feel, I think, the sting of them for ourselves, we really ought to meditate and to reflect even again for a moment. When we read passages like this in our current cultural climate, it can be very easy and tempting for us to sort of hop on our high horses and begin to point the finger at our world. We can begin to point out the speck in our brother's eye without first taking the log out of our own. Yes, it's true. We live in a world gone mad, gone sexually mad. But if, we can, if all we can think about as we read this passage is what's going on out there in the world and how immoral everything else is out there, then I think we've really missed the point of Paul's words here. Paul wants us to first look inwardly at our own way of life. Are we still living like pagan Gentiles? And so I hope that as we read these words, we feel ourselves laid bare before the holiness of God, that we would fully recognize our own failures, and if we need to, in regards to sexual immorality. And once we do, once we see our depravity and corruption for what it is, we must then look back again and again and again to the good news, to the gospel proclaimed for us in verse 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's no wonder then that Paul concludes verse 5 with the words, let there be thanksgiving. Indeed, there is much to be thankful about. God loved us and he gave himself up for us in Christ. And so, Given this, however, it could be easy for us to get ourselves off the hook and to continue to read this passage thinking just about others. And so, lest we think that Christ's love and His grace are for us a license to sin, to continue living in our sexual immorality or any other kind of impurity, Paul continues in verses 5 and 6 by giving us a solemn warning about the end which we will face if we unrepentantly continue to walk in sin and in sexual sin. So he says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And further, in verse 6, he continues, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the, heart, or upon the sons of disobedience. And so from these words, a few things stand out. First, it's important to note that for Paul, anyone who is living in sin in an ongoing or unrepentant pattern of sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness, he says that they have or has, that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. 
Notice that he doesn't say, if you continue doing this, you will have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Because if that's what Paul was saying, he would essentially be saying, you can be a Christian now and still struggle with all of these sins unrepentantly, but one day you will lose your inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. But that's not what Paul is saying. Instead, he tells us that such a person currently has no inheritance in God's kingdom. Even now, they have no inheritance. And this is all very similar to what he tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where we read these words, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, he says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so the upshot, then, of all of this, the big point, then, is that unrepentant practitioners of sin, those who are willfully living in it and have not turned from it, are those, are thought of as those, by Paul, who do not currently share in the inheritance of the kingdom of God. And so, in other words, Paul says here, Christians are those who were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So all Christians then are those who have repented and have now begun to fight against their sin, to mortify the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, so that they may begin, even imperfectly in this life, but nevertheless, truly, they may begin putting it to death and walking in holiness. And so as my friend, Pastor Patrick of Emmanuel, CRC, down the block, he once described it to me like this, and I thought it was super helpful. He says, we're either fighting against God with our sin, or we're fighting against our sin with God. We're either fighting against God with our sin, or we're fighting against our sin with God. That is the fundamental distinction here. But we can also point out from these words that the warning of God's judgment is a legitimate part of the gospel message. Paul says back in Ephesians 5 verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so simply put, Paul wants his readers to make no mistake, God's wrath is coming on those who claim to be sons of God, but by their deeds reveal that they are not sons of God, but they are sons of disobedience. They reveal then where their true allegiances lie through their works. And so given that Paul knows his tone is so serious and earnest, he wisely cautions us then to not be deceived by anyone with empty words. It's interesting that he mentions this. Empty words. This might mean someone who, by their words, tries to downplay or minimize the importance of these things. Tries to downplay or minimize the reality that we will all face the coming judgment. 
In our evening service last week, we looked at Acts chapter 24, where the Apostle Paul, the same man, is sitting before the governor of the Judean province of the Roman Empire. This governor's name was Felix. And Felix comes to Paul's prison cell, we're told, and begins to talk with him a little bit and to uh, ask him more about what he's teaching and why he's gotten in trouble with the Jews. And we're told there that Paul teaches him a few things. He teaches him about God's righteousness, we're told. He teaches him about self-control, living, I would say, by the Spirit in self-control. And then we're told that Paul told Felix, this governor who had the power to to kill him if he wanted to, Paul tells, tells him about the coming judgment, the judgment that is to come. Paul was clear. Warnings about the judgment that are to come are a part of the good news. It's important for us to keep the judgment of God in mind, or else Paul wouldn't do it. This is why the author of Hebrews simply says, it is appointed once for man to die and then to face the judgment. Judgment is coming. It would be a lie of me to downplay it or to minimize it for you. But what's the point? What's Paul's point in all of this? How should the knowledge of God's wrathful judgment then influence and affect how we live in the world today? And the answer is found in verses 7 through 14, where Paul now begins to further elaborate on these contrasts by talking about light and darkness. Light and darkness. And so we can see in verses 7 and 8, for example, Therefore do not become partners with them, that is, the sons of disobedience. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So as is typical of Paul's writings throughout the New Testament, so too here his ethical vision basically can be summarized by saying, Be what you already are in Christ. He's saying you are light. So walk as children of the light. That's the idea. Don't partner or join with these things from which you are, you do not belong, to which you do not belong. You are not in darkness. You are no longer a part of the darkness. Paul is saying you are light. Live now in this light. And so this command to not partner with such persons is a serious one. In ancient Ephesus, this sort of thing would have made perfect sense to them. And as we've seen in weeks past, there was a cultic practice of worship to this pagan goddess named Artemis. And she was, uh, this was one of the defining features of life together in the city of Ephesus, worshiping Artemis, going to her temple. And so it's not for nothing that in Acts chapter 19, where Paul is in the city of Ephesus, that Luke records those chants of the people when they feel that Paul has threatened her worship. They begin to cheer for two hours straight. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours, sort of working themselves up into a frenzy. And so the city we can see was sick with idolatry. The influence of the spiritual realm was for them palpable in a way that we moderns can hardly understand. And one of the key features of this cult of Artemis, one of the common ways in which she was to be worshipped through the city's public or civic life together, was through festivals that would take place throughout the year, where people would uh, begin to party and to drink. And as they would become more and more drunk, these festivals would descend then into Public orgies under the darkness of night. They would begin to to do all of this as a way of worshiping their goddess Artemis. She was the goddess of, of 
fertility, which is why I put the picture of her idol here. You can see all around her are these bulbous things. Now, scholars don't know. There's a little bit of debate about exactly what these are. Some people would suggest that they are breasts, and so symbolizing her fertility. Others would say that they are eggs. Either way, it's clear that as a goddess of fertility, that people were worshiping her according to what they believed that she was. And so it's no wonder then that Paul calls them to not partner with such persons. He calls the Christians in Ephesus to not join them or participate with them. They were carelessly degrading themselves, taking others for themselves, for their own gratification in in a way, in in an attempt to worship this false god. And so it's no wonder then, as they were practicing such things under the darkness of night that he calls them to live in the light and to expose the works of darkness. The light of Christ was for their good. Paul wanted them to do what was for their well-being, for their, in their best interest. And so it's no wonder then, in verse 18, for example, we see that he says uh, to not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, he says, but to be filled with the Spirit. Paul, like God, wanted the best for the Ephesian church. He wanted them to know God's will, God's healthy and holy will, which would lead them not into this cheap or falsified, fake form of sexual love and expression that would end up degrading and damaging themselves, but he wanted to call them now to sexual purity through which they would find the true meaning of sex, which is the union of man and woman as it is the the picture then of Christ and his bride, the church, in love. That's what we'll see next week in the final section where we see, interestingly, Paul call husbands to give themselves up for their wives. But for now, we'll not want to skip over the concluding section of our passage this morning, uh, verses 15 through 20, where the apostle now begins to summarize and sort of synthesize or pull together all the strands of thought from the previous two chapters. And he begins to put them into some simple or easy-to-understand conclusions for us. And so he says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. You're living in an an evil environment. Recognize that, he says. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so once again, he's using this imagery of walking, and he's wanting them to walk wisely, not unwisely. This is a concept drawn from the Old Testament, particularly from the book of Proverbs, where the connection is made between knowing and loving God's law and wisdom. What is wisdom? Knowing God's law, His will for our lives, and loving and delighting in it such that we begin to practice it. And we begin to see that God's way is the best way. And my way, my sinful, selfish, fleshly way, is going to degrade me and degrade others. This is why King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or the beginning beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
And Paul has already made God's will for us clear then to walk in that sort of self-sacrificial love where we give ourselves up for one another. We are called to be the light in the world, to avoid sexual darkness and crude jesting so that we may bear good fruit, the fruit of His light, to escape God's wrath at the coming judgment and to have eternal life, even now in joy and in fellowship with the living God. That is the will of God. And so Paul fittingly concludes this entire section with the words in verses 18 through 20, do not get drunk, as we've seen. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And he goes on, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so instead of giving themselves up, as we've seen, to drunkenness and to cultic orgies and the idolatrous worship of their false deity Artemis, Paul now wraps up the section with one final ethical contrast. They are instead supposed to be filled, not with wine, but with the Holy Spirit, over and over and over again. Instead of worshipfully giving themselves up to their flesh and to the practice of Artemis worship, they are now to give themselves up to God for the sake of others. To not take others for their own gain, but to give themselves up for one another. And then Paul says that this being filled with the Holy Spirit is to be expressed very beautifully and profoundly, he says, in addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart, and giving thanks always, everything, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so just as, and I'll conclude here with one final little section, just as in the Old Testament, God's temple, which is now the church, the temple in the Old Testament was filled with sacrifices and with music. And so just as it was filled with those things, we now are both the temple and we're the singers who make the music. The ones who not only praise him with the beauty of music, but with the beauty of our shared lives together. And we now we speak to one another. We're told to address one another with music. And so in a sense, then, our life together is to be characterized as a church, as a life of music. It was a beautiful song lived out and sung within the hearing range of the whole cosmos, the whole creation of God, not least of which to the whole uh, cosmos or the spiritual realm of the forces of darkness. And so it's incredible then, something that I came across in my study, it's incredible to realize that Paul's command here to sing and make melody using those exact words, sing and make melody to the Lord, is the exact same language that the King David makes in Psalms three times. He uses this language. It's in Psalm 27, Psalm 57, and in Psalm 108. And each of these Psalms, which are all actually very similar, in many parts word for word with each other, they are all Psalms where David is singing praise to God for conquering his enemies for conquering the enemies of God. And so David is therefore proclaiming God's supreme glory and power and might over all the earth with these psalms. And Psalm 27.6 is perhaps the best example of these three. And so that's why I chose it for our call to worship this morning. And I'll read it again. And now my head shall be lifted up, note, 
above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent, or his temple, sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Sing and make melody. That's what Paul is calling us here to do. So in telling us to sing and make melody in our, with our hearts to God and to one another, Paul is once again drawing on this theme of spiritual warfare found in Psalms, and now he's applying it to the theme of spiritual warfare in the book of Ephesians, which we've seen all throughout the text. As cities then of a culture, or as citizens of a city and culture like Ephesus, which was, as we've seen, rife with paganism and idolatry, Paul is essentially saying to these Christians that our song, are our songs of war. They are songs by which we announce God's might and His power, His supremacy into the whole world. And thus, through our songs, it's how we drive fear into the hearts of God's enemies through to the spiritual demonic realm, the forces who are at work in opposition even now to His light. And so it's why, for example, this is all why, for example, David plays the lyre for King Saul when King Saul is tormented by an evil spirit. Through David's playing music, he drives away this evil spirit. It's also why King Jehoshaphat at the Battle of, Je- of Tekoa in Second Chronicles chapter 20, when he sends out his army ahead of the army, he decides to send out the temple singers who are going and marching and singing out the words, Give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. And they destroy their enemies. And it's also why the great reformer Martin Luther once said, in reflecting on the beauty and the power of music, music is a gift of God. It drives away the devil and makes people joyful. They forget thereby all wrath, sexual immorality, arrogance, and the like. We know that to the devil, music is distasteful and insufferable. My heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. And so, brothers and sisters, given that music is one such holy and powerful weapon, I think it's fitting that we would close our times, as we do each week, with song, singing of God's glory and His mercy And doing what Paul says in verse 20, to give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for what? Everything, he says. Namely, God's mercy, his grace, and his love which he showed to us in Christ who gave himself up for us. Amen. Let's pray.